Father, thank you that you have given to us all that we need. Thank you, God, that by your Spirit, you have given us everything, great and precious promises. Through them, we can be partakers. We can partake of your nature. God, open our eyes today that we might see your great faithfulness. And everybody said, <laughs> amen. Well, good morning. I'm <clears throat> this morning, I want to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to uh, the seventh chapter of John. And we'll be, uh, we've been continuing to walk through the, the gospel of John. And this morning, if you have been reading along in the scriptures, and I encourage you to do that, we have been hitting the high points of the gospel of John. Should we hit every point, we'd be here forever. There's so much. So please be reading on your own as we kind of walk through the scriptures. And uh, this morning, I want to share uh, what I had alluded to a couple of, of weeks ago, and that is uh, Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching. And this morning, I simply call this the importance of the Holy Spirit. How important is he to us, to you, to me? Well, Jesus, beginning in verse 32, the Pharisees heard uh, the crowd murmuring because of concerning him. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the officers uh, were sent to take him, verse 33 of chapter 7 of John, and then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. Uh, you, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews among them uh, began to question, what's, going, what's he saying? What does he intend, where does he intend to go? We shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion along with the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you'll seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And then that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, as I said two weeks ago, that the high priest would pour out uh, water at a specified time of prayer, and it is at that time, verse 37, during this last day of this great day of the feast, what's called the great day, the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up, and at that very moment, he cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart or innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him or believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I just want to take a moment when Jesus was not yet glorified. When the writers use that word, Jesus was not yet glorified, it means that Jesus had not yet gone to that cross. 
and on it given himself. Jesus had not yet died and was not yet buried. Jesus was not yet buried and raised from the dead through the resurrection and the power of, of the Spirit, and he had not ascended back to the Father, and that is the point at which the coronation of this new king would be crowned. And through this ascension then, now seated, crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected and ascended back to the Father was what the Scripture calls when Jesus would be glorified. Uh, so Jesus cried out and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his innermost being shall flow. Well, as I've been reading the book of John, I've discovered that actually there are at least four very clear places now in the first seven chapters where Jesus begin, has begun to unfold this, uh, this issue of uh, the Spirit. And I just remind you that working backwards from chapter 7, if you look at chapter uh, 6, in chapter 6, uh, Jesus, the people were following Jesus after he had fed the 5,000. And in verse uh, 34 of John chapter uh, 6, um, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, having just fed the 5,000, and now people were following him because he, they saw this miracle. He said to them that I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, thirst, then, is a metaphor of when you are thirsty, you want to drink. And the issue that God is putting before us is the issue of our thirst, But he's not talking about physical thirst here. He's talking about spiritual thirst. If we drop back a couple of chapters to John chapter 4, just by virtue of, of summary here, in John chapter 4, we remember that Jesus is now speaking to the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan, and in verse 14 of chapter 4, uh, Jesus uh, says to her, um, uh, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him or her, they will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And another text as we work back in, in John, John chapter 3, you remember that Jesus was here speaking to one of the rulers of the Jews whose name was Nicodemus. And Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. How important is the Spirit of God? How important is the Holy Spirit? If there's anything that I'm familiar with or know as I've walked as a Christian now for over 40 years, is that the issue of the Holy Spirit scares people to death. Uh, and, but, and somehow, because of that, it seems that we would uh, sort of uh, um, backpedal from him and simply uh, seek to live out the Christian life without his presence. Now, if I would just say that if those 
in the book of Acts who didn't have the New Testament, why would we only try to live the Christian life through the New Testament and negate what they did have in the first century, which was his spirit? You see, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Uh, So I want to talk about this issue as we move toward communion here this morning of of, um, why the Holy Spirit is so important. I'm not talking about the baptism of the Spirit. I'm talking about the person of the Holy Spirit who wants to fill our lives. Jesus said without him, you'll simply be pedaling your bicycle harder and harder, and you'll never walk in victory. Well, turn with me, if you would, and let me just take a few minutes and, and tell you a familiar story back in Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, if you would. Um, verse 1 of chapter 1. Why do we need the Holy Spirit is the question. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on and it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was, was on the face of the deep, that which God has cre- had created. He created out of nothing, and there then existed this form, and God began to set everything in order. And he, you remember, he did that in what the Bible calls four Days And at that point of God having created the heavens and the earth, though it was void and without uh, form, it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So now all we have is God and the Spirit of God hovering over that which was void and without uh, form. And if we go on and read, God said, let there be light, and God put in order everything from his created, uh, he began to order his creation. And finally, we come uh, to um, verse 26 of chapter 1, and it says that uh, then God said, after he had created the animals, now this, this setting of the creation in order, God said, verse 27, uh, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he gave them a covenant of creation. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, etc. And on verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. God, in the beginning, God... The Spirit of God was hovering over, and God saw that it was very good when he created. Now, I just want to remind you of John chapter 1. In the John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the, the logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the, the, it, is a, it, it is saying the pre-incarnational Christ 
We know this this logos as Jesus, but in the beginning, it wasn't just God and the Spirit hovering. John tells us through further revelation that there was actually three in the beginning. We don't have that full revelation in the very beginning in Genesis, but now in the New Testament, we have the fullest revelation that in the very beginning, when God in the beginning, in the beginning, God created, how did he create? We're told that he created by virtue of his Son and by his Spirit. And there is an organic unity. When God said, let us make man, male and female, he created them. There was an organic unity in, in the Godhead that was existing then. And they were, they, we finite people's minds can't get around this issue of Trinity. We cannot understand it fully. But God, the Spirit, and the the Logos that eventually became flesh and dwelt among us where we began to see the fullest revelation, they were in the beginning creating. Let me quickly move through this because we move then uh, into chapter 2. And if you look at uh, verse 7, it says, now chapter 2 is is not so much a recapitulation or re-summarizing of what's in chapter 1. It's giving us a bit more information about that creation story. Now, follow with me here. Verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God then formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. Now, in chapter 1, it says that we were created in the image of God. In chapter 2, it says God took the, the dust of the ground. Now, when God created the earth, he created rock, mountains, trees, wood. But God took the, the soil of the ground and he created, he fashioned this, this man, and then uh, God breathed into what he had fashioned with his hands the life-giving spirit, and he became a living neshef, a, he, had, he became a living soul. Now, many of us won't understand what that means because in the New Testament we say the soul is simply our mind, our will, and our emotions. It was more than that. In the, New, in the Old Testament, when God had uh, formed man uh, out of the dirt of the ground, um, he breathed into him and then he, the man, became a, a living soul. The soul in the Old Testament is not just the, the soul, the emotions, the mind, and the will. It's the spirit. It's, it's that invisibility that sets us apart from all of the other created things. Now, now what I want you to see here, and this has only come to me recently, is because, well, I'll get to it in just a minute, is that God created man um, and, and made him into a container. And it wasn't until God shared and breathed into this container that we have becoming a, a, a living soul, a man in whom the presence of God now lived. God never created us to be independent beings. 
Now think of that for just a minute, because most of us still live our lives under the, the, the fallacy, under the myth that we are independent. God created them out of the dirt, and it wasn't until he breathed into them himself that they became filled with his life. First of all, the purpose of God's creation is for us to contain his presence. That's all. To contain his presence. And it was never to be independent of him. There was no independent self in creation. You see, to contain the presence of another was the very reason by which God created us out of the dirt of the, of the ground. And he imparts his spirit into that clay vessel, if you will, that container. And that's when man became a living soul. Now, if you continue to read, and I'm going to move this back into John in just a moment. But if you continue to read in Genesis uh, 2, verse 9, it says, And then God created a garden, that's verse 8, and he, then he put his created filled, perfectly created, and now filled with the living Spirit of God. Put that man in this garden. And the narration says in verse 9 of chapter uh, 2 that out of the ground the Lord made every tree to grow that was pleasant to look at. And in the midst of the garden stood a tree of life uh, was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's given me, I think, some fresh revelation for me, and I'll try to share it in a small amount of time here this morning. And the first one has to do, see, I have lived independently all my life. What that means is when I was a little, little guy, little, little, you know, I'd want to do things myself. Y'all have kids, you know that. Uh, and my mom used to say to me, you were the most independent little thing. And I said, yeah. You know what, I mean, I, we, I, I can do it myself. Come on, anybody know that in here? About yourself or your children? Or, see, we want to be independent. We presume that we have been created for independency when in fact we've been created for, for, we've been created in the very image of God where Father shares with the Son and the Spirit. Jesus shares with the... Yeah, a unity. John chapter 7 17, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father and the Spirit. It is a mystery. And God begins to unpack then this this mystery. Uh, So verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden. And the Lord commanded the man, verse 16, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And in the day that you eat, if in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely uh, die. Well, um, what, what, what God uh, 
I used to see this as somehow, uh, you remember, we're going to read in chapter 3 in just a minute, is that they saw, well, let's just, let's just push forward and, and read it for just a minute. What happens next is God puts a sleep on Adam and he takes a piece of his rib and he creates woman out of man, out of a, a piece of Adam's uh, container. He creates a woman. So they're both created of the same substance for the same purpose, not to be independent, but to carry the presence of another. This has huge implications if you begin to see the revelation of it. So now, in the garden, um, verse 1 of chapter 3, there was a serpent. This is the first, this is the first thing we read of serpent. But it says that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, and he said to the woman, he, the serpent, said to uh, the woman, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of the tree of the garden of Eden? Now, I used to think that Eve was sitting there, standing there, and the serpent comes up and she, and, you know, look at the tree which God said not to eat of, and you have heard me preach that this is where the rebellion of man has begun. I don't think they were rebellious at all. They were seduced, and they were deceived, and there is a very big difference. In later chapters, as we walk through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament to the fullest revelation of this, we see that there really is an enemy and he went by the name, later in the major prophets, he goes by the name of Lucifer. And he was created in Genesis 1-1, when God created uh, the heavens, Hashmim, and the Wa'eretz, the dirt, the, the world. God was creating and ordering all manner of things that we don't have revelation of at that point. And he created a high angel by the name of Lucifer who had one sole purpose, and that was to be an angel of light. He was a light bearer, and he was head of worship. And for some reason, I don't understand, he rebelled. Now, he's the one who said, I want to be like the Most High. So here he comes as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and he comes in the form of a cunning beast. Uh, and he said, has God said that you shall not eat of the trees that are in the garden? And a woman said, oh, we can eat of, of the trees. But the fruit of the tree, uh, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you even touch it or you will die. And then the serpent said to her, you will not surely die. Because God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, uh, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food uh, and it was pleasant to her eyes and it was desirable to make one wise. And she took the fruit and she ate it and gave it some to her husband and uh, he ate it. And then their eyes were opened uh, and uh, they knew that they were naked. Now, the serpent's subtleness. Uh, Adam was, remember, he was created not as to be independent, but to be dependent. He was not independent. He was simply a container to hold 
the presence of God. In the New Testament, we discover that God is spirit. In John chapter 4, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. Uh, God is love. In 1 John and, and in other places, uh, God is light, and in him is no darkness of all. You see, and, and, and it is the presence of God that we were created to contain, uh, but Adam and Eve uh, actually weren't in rebellion. They were simply seduced. You see, Adam and Eve were formed only to contain the presence of God, but when the breath of life, when they ate of this fruit, uh, we discovered that they died, and they didn't die physically. The, the life-giving spirit, when God created man out of the dirt and the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and when they were seduced to believe a lie, the spirit of God that had animated them, filled them, gave them life and made them a life-giving spirit, exited the man and the woman, and they died. You see, the definition of death is when the spirit separates from the body, physical death. And at this point, the spirit of God exited, and in that vacuum, another spirit entered. I go, oh, that's, that, you know, I don't know. Well, um, you see, when the breath of life exited the container, and the man was only made to contain the presence of God, the Spirit of God, another spirit entered in, uh, entered into the vacuum. And as we have fuller than revelation, as we go into the New Testament, um, there is a spirit of the world uh, called by another name, uh, the spirit of error. Um, uh, from now on, they could only manifest what was now in them. You see, sin came into them, if you will. It wasn't their rebellion. Uh, sin was exterior to them. And now began. see, we, the reason we sin is because of the nature that we have. From now on, they could only manifest the life of another. And in some very real way, um, sin at its source is the life of another that is now filling the container. I, I know this is heady, but if we begin to get it, it's, it's, it's actually transformational. Uh, so um, the cross then, when Jesus came, the cross uh, wasn't just about um, forgiving our sin. That was part of it. That was massive. It's through the blood of Jesus that we actually are justified. The, the cross is God's means of evicting the false invading spirit that had been living in the container and causing us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that we think that we can determine in ourselves what is good and what is evil because until we come to the cross, uh, this false spirit continues to work in us. You go, oh, that, well, let's look at Ephesians 2. It says that he, God, uh, made, or he, uh, Jesus, made us alive 
when we were dead in our sins, in whom the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You see, so the blood of Jesus deals not just with what the, 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 the external man does by virtue of being a created vessel. Uh, the blood of Jesus actually um, covers our sin. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll, I'll, I'll hope to sort of tie this together, but I commend it to your study. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about from now on we're a new creation, having gone to the cross. You see, the blood of Jesus deals with our sin. It forgives all of our sins, plural as well, but the blood of Jesus deals with our sin. You know, I, I love that hymn, Now, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. One of the refrains says, he, he, it, the canceled sin he delivered us from. I can't remember how it goes. He breaks the power of canceled sin. You see, the sin is canceled by the blood of Jesus. The sin which was which was happening because of the source of the enemy's spirit living in the container, Jesus breaks the power of that sin, that canceled sin. First of all, the blood of Jesus cancels the sin, but when Jesus died on the cross and his body was dead, something else radically happened. You see, the full gospel, the gospel of what really happened at the cross was that we are justified through the blood of Jesus, but through the bodily death of Jesus, that severs the alien spirit. So when a man or a woman comes to the cross, their, their sins are, are rampant. The sin simply happens because of the sin nature of the one who is inhabiting the pot. The vessel, the, the container. And when we come to the cross, when we look to Jesus, all of a sudden when I trust him, he forgives all of my sin and everything that grows out of it, all those little sins that we do. But he doesn't just deal with our little sins. He, if, he, through the death of Jesus, he actually breaks let me read it to you. Romans chapter 6, and we'll move to communion. Romans chapter 6. For if we, were, if we had been united together in the likeness of his death. Now remember, the blood of Jesus cancels sin, forgives our sins. We're justified as if we never sinned through the blood of Jesus. Verse 5 of Romans 6 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him. Now what happens is that the separation of the spirit and the body is death. When you and I come to the cross, the blood of Jesus cancels our sin. God reasserts his lordship and forgives us. 
But it's not just that. He breaks the power of it because when Jesus died and went into the grave, and because Romans chapter 6 says you were with him when he went into the grave, you actually died at that point, and that alien indweller and his power was broken and evicted out of your life so that when Jesus came out of the tomb, Jesus was then by the Spirit filled with the presence of God, and you were too. Now, here's the deal. When you come to Jesus, it's more than your sins are forgiven. It's that the enemy who had been living in us is evicted so that a new indweller can come and begin to live his life in, in the created vessel. See, we were never called to be independent people. That's why Jesus said, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. Uh, but see, the church is filled with, with people who think that because their sins are forgiven and then they struggle and wrestle and fight against this thing called sin and God's already dealt with it. He has covered it through his blood and he has evicted its source so that he who is holy can now come and live his life in us. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said you have to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit is life. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Beloved, we were never intended to live independently from God. Therefore, we are tempted to do so by the alien spirit who no longer lives in us, but he's exterior to us. All he can do is try to call you off of your calling and who you are in Jesus. That's why when a man or a woman sins, we can say, it's, not, it's really not me. I'm responsible for it because it comes through my, my body, but its source is not me. You see, that's why First, uh, Second Corinthians uh, Chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. The question is, what has passed away? It's the old man. Not only was our sins forgiven, but the old man died. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, the new man now lives. And he doesn't live by your strength. He lives by his own strength uh, in the container that is now filled with the Spirit of God. I just commend this to your study because I have fought against sin all of my life, presuming that somehow I would get free from it in my own strength. And so have many of you. The good news is the fight is over and Jesus has won the fight and now the Spirit of God can come and fill the vessel with his presence so that we can say the very thing Jesus said, I don't do anything of my own strength anymore but him who lives in me. You see, uh, he uh, who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean I can't sin, but it means that's not who's in the vessel. Who's in the vessel is holy. Now, I'd simply commend this to you, that, that holiness and righteousness is not 
has nothing to do with my container. It has to do with he who is holy. That's why the tabernacle was set apart. That's why the temple was filled with the presence. That's why Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You see, we gain our sustenance uh, as containers, as vessels, by the Spirit of God living in us so that when the enemy tempts me from outside uh, and I succumb, I quickly recognize that's not who I am. Who I am is a blood-bought spirit-filled man who is now a new creation in Christ. So that repentance then isn't, oh, I thought that terrible thought. I said those stupid words. Yeah, that's part of it. But sin is the difference between my uh, independence and my dependence upon the one who has bought me and filled me and lives his life in me and through me. So Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. And then he said, oh, I've been crucified with Christ. The question is, have you? You see, God has called his people to a crucified life, and you can't crucify yourself. You can wound yourself, but you can't crucify yourself. And the good news is you don't need to. He's already done it. So that when we look to Jesus... All of our sins are forgiven, and the power of that canceled sin is now broken so that you and I can walk in newness of life. What a gospel that God has given to us, that he, from the very beginning, wanted vessels and containers to contain his presence, and ultimately through the cross, he made the way by which his holy presence can now come and live in the likes of me a container, a cracked pot, an earthen vessel. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory might be seen as coming from him and not from us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we say that sometimes it's more complex than it should be, and, and yet you said in... Uh, through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that as the serpent um, deceived Eve, um, I want you not to be uh, deceived from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, it never was about us. It was always about him in us. And so God, I pray today that as we celebrate this holy communion, Celebrating not only the blood of Jesus, but his body broken for us. The body of Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and I bet you it was something like this bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. I I know they didn't get it fully. When Jesus died, he died for a sin. Uh, but when he physically died, we died with him. So you remember that it isn't about us anymore. And after he had eaten with his disciples, he took the cup and pouring it out, he said, and this is the blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink of this, this, the fruit of this vine, 
do so in remembrance of me. Jesus has forgiven all of our sin, and Jesus has evicted an old nature that wants to rebel and in its place has put a new nature, which is the Spirit of God. Now, the enemy can tempt you, but he'll never win the battle because the Lord of hosts is now living in his people. You are a living temple, a living tabernacle filled with his presence. Let us stop trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. I fail miserably, and I'm recognizing I was never intended to, but only through the presence of God can we live for his glory.